0: would you pray with me once more please the pronouncement of your scriptures is that your word accomplishes things it reads us it changes us we're asking that you might pry into the various places that we find ourselves this morning, haggard, fatigued, excited, depressed, anxious, hopeful, in this great chaotic soup of need of this congregation, let the words of Christ come and engender hope, engender an unbounded kind of confidence and you, and your willingness, and your ability to do things. Would you come, Lord Jesus, surprise us with your presence this morning? Amen. Several years ago, 20-ish, Kathy and I, Kathy, my wife, and I were not yet married, but we were in the midst of our 100-year courtship, and we had gone to a wedding, And for that wedding, we had consolidated cars, and so left a car at the Crystal parking lot downtown near the library, if you know where that is, across from the new EPB. I don't know why I'm telling you all those details. But when we came back from the wedding to unconsolidate the cars and to get back in our respective vehicles, we were approached by a man. And this man was a man who had a particular sort of ailment. It was back in the days of the serpentine belt epidemic that was happening downtown. I later learned it was an epidemic of people, this man. See, he, his family was in a car and their serpentine belt broke. You know what a serpentine belt is? You can get one for 1995 at the oil change place. His oil, his uh, serpentine belt broke, his family was stranded, something or another about a car. We were dressed in our finest duds, betraying our great wealth, except for my pink Nissan Sentra, which also betrayed no wealth. It was red when I bought it in the rain at night, it was pink in the daytime when it wasn't wet. I don't want a red car, I just, okay. It was cheap. So anyway, so I, being a young, earnest fellow who took Matthew 25 quite seriously, I said, well, come on, get in the car. I'll take you. I'll take you to your family. I'll take you to your car. We'll get it worked out. Kathy was excited. <laughs> she was in another car. This was pre-cell phone, so I didn't get to hear what my, she'd be thinking. But So I drove this guy, and he took me to the first place. And a number of shady places he drove me to, he drove me. He's like, hey, just go right back behind this building here. My car should be back there. So I I drove him back there because I was an idiot. And his car was not there. So he said, oh, well, it must be over around the corner here. And we're driving all around Macaulay Avenue, Central Avenue, all around down there. He drives me to another place. Not there. Oh, I guess he's just, he's, the, tow, the tow truck I hadn't gotten here yet. So we we park on Central Avenue out in front of this locked up. Service station with lots of cars in it and some junkyard dog-looking things, and so we sit there and we wait because I'm an idiot. I'm waiting for this man's car to arrive, and we wait. It's not a little awkward. We're sitting in my pink Nissan Sentra. We don't know each other. We're waiting for his car that apparently he realizes is not ever going to show up because it does not exist. I don't realize this yet. So I'm just waiting. And eventually I'm like, buddy, I'm sorry, I got, I'm going to have to go. So I wound up giving him the money, and, you know, 20 bucks or 10 bucks or something. And as I left, and revelation was given to me. And the next time someone came to me and told me they had a serpentine belt problem... I started realizing, oh, this is a thing. Lots of people have serpentine belt problems. It's getting around. But I started to realize, man, that guy was absolutely audacious. I mean, it was shameless. That was was shameless in Costanza-type proportions that he was willing to let me drive him to a place where he knew there would be no car of his. He was willing to let me just sit there and wait and spend ever how much time knowing that he was lying. But you know what he got in the end? He got his money. Because I'm an idiot. But he got his money because he was audacious. He was shameless. He didn't give up. He didn't ever let me call his bluff. He didn't call it for sure. And... What I think about when I think about that story is, it's a little bit, the characters are a little bit changed, and the dimensions are a little bit turned, but it's something like what Jesus urges when he's talking to his disciples about prayer. He is giving people, like us, whom he knows, will find it very difficult to keep interacting with God, to keep having much confidence in God, who will find it very easy to get distracted with a million other things, who will find faith sort of faltering in them. He's giving them an impetus for how they can interact with God, an invitation. And this is what we're told when he tells the story. Jesus told his parable, his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. So that's his point. He's telling them a story to show them that they should always pray and not give up. Implicit in telling someone a story as to why they should always pray and not give up, is that people are prone to never pray and to always give up. And so Jesus wants to give some impetus here. He wants to give you an invitation here. And so he tells this story. You've heard it before. You've heard me talk about it before. It's one of my favorites. In a certain town, there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared about men. Now, this is the same thing as saying there was a wicked judge. In Old Testament, if a judge didn't give a hoot about God, didn't give a hoot about his regulations, his requirements, his laws, he was a wicked person. So Jesus is saying the one on the bench is the ultimate revisionist. He doesn't care about the law. He doesn't care about God. He doesn't care about anybody. He does whatever he wants. He serves his own needs. He's a wicked judge. He's a foil in this story. But there also comes a widow in that town, who kept coming to him with the plea, grant me justice against my adversary. And I would think you would know by now in the first century Palestine, if you were a widow, this is sort of typifying the most horrible state to be in. The most economically vulnerable, the most powerless, the most exposed. There's no Social Security, there's no Medicare. You've got nobody on your side, no way to make money, no way to protect yourself, no way to ensure justice, nobody to pay a bribe, to get his case speedily worked through. You're on your own. Jesus is picking the most desperate, the most exposed, in terms of vulnerability, person that he can think of. This widow comes and says, grant me justice against my adversary. This wicked judge for some time refuses. But finally, he says to himself, even though I don't fear God, it's an interesting self-dialogue, isn't it? Even though I don't fear God or care about men, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I'll see that she gets justice so she won't eventually wear me out with her coming. It's a very peculiar story. It's a very peculiar sort of in invitation to prayer, you won't find this sort of thing in the mystics. But it's really exciting to me, and I've made use of it a lot. Because Jesus is saying, here's what got this woman a hearing with a wicked judge. She was audacious. She was shameless. She just didn't stop. She just wore him down. He was incredibly reluctant. He was avoiding her calls. He was telling his secretary not to see her when she came. Make an excuse. And she kept coming. Widows aren't supposed to make a scene. Widows aren't supposed to bother people. And she was bothering him. Over and over and over again, like a gadfly, until he said, "Ah, Okay! Now, there's not a parent in here who doesn't understand this dynamic. I guarantee you every single parent in here has done something for your child that you knew ahead of time you weren't going to do for your child. But you just caved in because they were such a pill about it. You realized, against your better judgment even, if I do not succumb to their requests, their repeated requests, their angry requests, their sullen requests, their pouty requests... If I don't give in, my life is going to stink for a long time. So I'll give in. It's something like that. She just wore him down. Now, what's interesting, though, is that Jesus is telling us something about how to approach, how to approach God. And it, it really violates, I think, a lot of the way that we tend to approach him. Do you know this rule? It's an unspoken rule probably. A lot of men have this rule in particular. It's the rule called do not bother people. Do you know this rule? It's a rule where you live your life in such a way as to not ever be a hindrance to anyone ever. Don't ask anything of anybody. Don't get in anybody's way. The other day I needed to go to the Erlanger to get this infusion of medicine. I hadn't been able to have it in three months and some complications, and I needed to get in to get it. And so I called on Wednesday. Is there any possible way I could get in tomorrow? No, I'm sorry, we're overbooked. Okay, thank you. And I hang up. Because what, what do you do? You accept what people say. You do not bother them. And Kathy's like, what's wrong with you? You need to get in there. And I, my credo is don't bother people. Well, so I got to thinking I do need to get in there. So I called the next morning. No, I'm sorry, you still can't come. But if you try back at noon, I tried back at noon. And an uncharacteristic display of persistence, I called these people three times. Putting on the line everything that's important to me. I want them to think well of me. I don't want them to think I'm a badger. I don't want them to think I'm a nuisance. I don't want to put them out. But I really needed the stuff. So they gave in. I kept trying. And they gave in. And I violated the rule of don't bother people. And I think that some of the ways that we approach God sometimes, if you watch your prayers, if you were to sort of video them, don't do that, it's bad. But if you were to kind of have third-party analysis of your prayers, of your interaction with God, I bet there's a lot of how you do it that's uh, characterized by this sort of, I don't want to bother God too much. If your prayers are overly polite if you talk in ways that you don't talk in real life, if you talk to God about things that don't actually affect your life or the lives of people around you or anything happening in the world, you just kind of talk in platitudes and bless you, this and that, then it's a good chance that you're not interacting with him in the way that he's inviting you to here. Someone said you can tell what someone really believes about God by how they talk to him in private. Do you understand how that could be the case? And the story of this widow here is that she realized that this judge had within his power, he was the only one who had within his power the possibility of doing anything different about her life. She was in such a state of desperation that she was willing to be shameless. She was willing to be persistent. She was willing to be tireless, she didn't care. She had nothing to lose. The dude, i thought about this, these guys, these panhandlers who approach me antagonistically sometimes. The one thing that can be said about them is there's a certain kind of desperation that gets you to that point. You don't care what anybody thinks of you. You want something and you've got to get it. Now, Jesus is urging you to think of yourself as the widow here. Somebody who needs God to move so badly that you're going to not give yourself rest, as Isaiah said, or Him rest until He moves. You're somebody who has no other recourse. And you're thinking of God as the one who has the power and who has the capability and the willingness to actually do something about it because, see, the difference between Him and the judge, he's making an argument from lesser to greater, is that he's actually not reluctant. This judge succumbs unwillingly for his own convenience. But God invites you to come because he wants to hear from you. Because prayer is how he has set up part of the governance of the universe. That's how he wants to co-rule the world with us. He wants us to pray so that he institutes justice. So that he institutes his peace. So he institutes his reign. He does it through our prayers. That's part of how he does it, partly through our work, partly through him just doing whatever he does. You can know whether you're really very confident in him by looking at what are my prayers like when I'm by myself. Would somebody see me praying? Like say Hannah and say, Man, that dude must be drunk talking to God like that. Pouring out their heart like that. You know the prayer scene in the Apostle? It's my favorite one where Robert Duval's up in his room. He's screaming to God. Do y'all know has anybody seen this movie? Nineteen ninety four. Robert Duvall, the greatest actor ever lived. He's a preacher, and he's standing in his room. He's got his wife beater on, and he's sweating. He's lost everything. They've taken my wife, he says. They've stolen my church. That's the temple I built for you, O oh Lord. I yell at you because I'm bad at you, he says. I can't take it, he says. Give me a sign or something. Blow this pain out of me, he says. Give it to me tonight, Lord God Jehovah. And if you won't give me back my wife, give me peace. Give it to me, give it to me, give it to me, give me peace. I don't know who's fooling with me, whether it's you or it's the devil. I don't know. I won't even bring that other human into it. He's just a mutt, so I won't even bring him into it. But I'm confused, Lord. I'm mad. I love you, Lord. I love you, I love you, but I'm mad at you, Lord. I'm mad at you. So deliver me tonight, Lord. What should I do? Now tell me. Should I lay hands on myself? What should I do? I know I'm a sinner every once in a while, a womanizer, but I'm your servant. Ever since I was a little boy, I'm your servant. You brought me back from the dead. Tell me, what should I do? I've always called you Jesus. You've always called me Sonny. What should I do, Jesus? This is Sonny. This is Sonny talking now. What should I do? His mother gets a phone call from the neighbor next door. (coughs) He's heard him shamelessly, audaciously, persistently engaging all that's bad about him, with all that he knows is good about God. The next door neighbor calls and says, what is going on over there? It sounds like you've got a wild man over there carrying on, hollering and whatever. Who is that? And his mother answers, ever since he was a little boy. Sonny's talked to the Lord. Sometimes he yells at the Lord and sometimes he talks. Tonight it just seems to be that he's yelling. And she just delights. She just laughs. Why would she laugh at that? She laughs because her son has learned the truthfulness of this passage. That God means it. He wants people crying out to him. Offering everything about them. Everything that's broken down about them. When you're praying for justice. You're praying that God would set right everything that's gone cattywampus in the world. Everything that's presently not the way God intended. All the ways that his shalom has been vandalized. You're praying that back right side up. So when you start to notice economically things are bad. You start to notice in your business things are bad. You start to notice that in people's health and people's relationships and in your children and even in yourself. That things are not as they should be your first recourse. Not your last. Your first recourse, Jesus says, is to be a people who are wearing God out with your coming. Because you're so confident that if anybody's going to do anything about anything, it's going to start with Him. It's going to be superintended by Him. It's going to be empowered by Him. And He's the one we need. What will you... Wear God out about this year. I know, as one author said, that human history is sorrowful enough to make a stone cry. Your lives are like that. There are things in it. There's injustice all over the place. There's dilapidated ways of things being. They're all invitations for us to shamelessly, tirelessly wear God out that he might set it right. But will he find faith on the earth? That's the question. Will he find people who are willing to do that? That's the question.
1: And as I close, I'd
0: say this. It might seem like a weird kind of thing for Jesus to say, a weird kind of way for him to invite us in to pray to say, using boxing kind of verbs, like, this widow is beating me down. She's dotting my eye with her constant requests. Like, isn't that a peculiar way for God to talk about the relationship between his children? But Gordon Mac- uh, George MacDonald, rather, who taught C.S. Lewis a lot, once said this, and it's very helpful and I close with it. He said, A runaway may leave home and eventually return because he's hungry. Hunger might bring him home, but he needs his mama more than he needs his supper. The hunger just got him there to the lap that would make him right. And he says God could, if he wanted, he could meet all the needs of all the world all at once without anybody asking. He's very smart. He's very big, powerful. Speaks things into being. He could snap his fingers. Stuff would happen. But he says, but God withholds that men may ask. That's part of his method. If you think about anything broken down in your life this year, as an invitation to wear God out about it, it's God's invitation to get you close to him. To come on in. To trust him big enough to be able to do something about the things you can't do anything about. Will you wear him out this year? Tirelessly? With audaciousness? With shamelessness? Will you pray in such a way? Sometimes if someone were to see you, they'd ask if you needed a psychiatric evaluation. Will you trust him enough with all your inner gunk? Your fear, your doubt, your anger, your excitement. That you bring all of it to him day and night. That you wear him out with your coming. That's my hope for us this year. Let's pray.